Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. I want to welcome everyone back to episode 145 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Sheldon and just to talk a little shop before we get into it. We got a super excellent guest on the show today, Jen Shears from Corner Brook, Newfoundland. And Jen has got her fingers and almost a little bit of everything. It was almost overwhelming trying to, to plan the podcast, honestly, with her. She's got so many skills and activities from... Uh, you know, bear hunting. She has her own business around uh, seal usage, uh, fitness recommendations on gear and equipment in her blog, uh, hunting, and also like just a, a huge advocate for Newfoundland. She, it looks like she plays a little poker on the side. We didn't get into that one on the podcast. Maybe, maybe in a subsequent one we will. Um, but really good conversation with Jen, and we were really excited to have her on. So. Um, but first, um, Sheldon, you're tuning in from Headingly this this evening, I guess it would be. How are you doing over there? Oh, man, I'm just dandy. Yeah, not many people stay in Headingly, I don't think, unless they're playing hockey at the Iceplex or going to the outdoor show. Here. But, um, yeah, I'm staying here. I'm doing some work uh, north of the city. So instead of driving into the city every day, I'm right on the perimeter, so it's nice. Yeah, that is uh, – that's not too bad. And – we you were over there for the outdoor show too and then we spent a little time hanging around just inside the perimeter too after the fact i remember but any any outdoor activities throughout the week i know we just chatted and you were out on lake winnipeg recently but uh anything else going on well i was on actually lake manitoba last weekend lake manitoba um, my bad. yeah we uh I don't know. It was a cold day. It was Saturday, but um, I got to, we got to where we wanted to go. Um, we were talking to a guy that was fishing there the weekend before and he, him and his buddy, you know, got, got a few, few, or got their limit and, you know, did really well where they're at. <clears throat> so we decided to go kind of set up where they were. Um, we were, I was just fortunate enough that the guy showed me uh, where he was fishing, which not many people do. So I was just happy to get out there, but we got out there, we set up, there's one, two, three, four, five of us, uh, and we caught two walleyes. So it was a very slow day. It was cold. Um, I think I froze. Well, I didn't freeze my fingers by any means, but my fingers got super cold at the end of the the end of the um, fishing little fishing trip when we we're packing up. The one good thing that I did have, which you'll hear in the podcast, is I had my sealskin mitts. So I was uh, after you can't do much with them because they're so big, but. Once, uh, once we got everything packed up and got those mitts on for the sled ride back to the trucks, it was, uh, they're nice to have. Um, but yeah. And then not only that, I was using that HT tent again, uh, three of us were fishing out of it and super comfortable, big. And, um, if you're looking to get into something like that or anything, ice fishing or whatever, go to Harvester Outdoors. Um, they, they're usually having some pretty good sales, especially this time of year for ice fishing. So check them out on their website at harvesteroutdoors.com. Or you can check them out at 506 Mercy Street in Selkirk. So if you're on the way to the lake this weekend, stop by there, grab your $5 minnows, maybe some lures, a couple of rods, and you'll be on your way. What about you? Were you fishing yeah, this weekend? I was going to say not a bad idea, too. And I'm guessing they're probably opening up for, for summer fishing soon here, like or like open water season. So stocking up for that. Um, 
you can also check out the Sean Taylor band. I think Sean's making the, the tours around the province this, this time of year. So he, yeah, lo- he looks like he's going pretty hard with the band there. eh? Yeah. I've seen a few of his Instagram stories there. Have you listened to this uh, new single on iTunes or, or Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your music there? Yeah. You know what? I tried on Spotify and I, I stopped with the premium and it like took me to like QX one Oh three or whatever the, <laughs> the basically just a shuffle of like, pop music but i did get to it on youtube and it's a it's a it's a catchy little number that uh that one there it's almost like uh i don't want to like discredit the song at all but it kind of reminds me like like a cover with like a new version yeah of like an old cover or something i don't know how to explain it but it's actually a really catchy tune i like it a lot there's some sentimental uh sentimental feelings in there for sure Mm -hmm. i have not been out much but i will you know, it's kind of the twilight season for the shack on the Red River. So we'll squeeze out the last few days and we'll plan a little March madness, hopefully coming up soon. Yeah, for oh, sure. Yeah. Funny story though. I, uh, I was going to take the, I, well, actually we had the family down to the shack on the weekend and I, and had the in-laws there and everything. So it was, uh, it was a large to do, and I was handing out the snowmobile rides and and stuff like that to the the youngins who were just absolutely jacked to be <laughs> on a snowmobile. Um, so that was pretty cool. But I went to go start up the fire and prep the shack, like basically like an outfitter would, right before everyone showed up. Oh yeah, about an hour before, and cut the holes, clean the ice, that kind of stuff. And uh, I was like, oh no, the baby is sleeping in the bedroom, and that's where all my wool love is. <laughs> so and like it wouldn't have been in the end of the world but like it really i really have come to like appreciate it for its comfort factor when i'm right. when it like it makes the day a little easier to get through when you're you're wearing the wool of especially when you got like four kids running around you or something like that yeah however i had a fresh pack in my hunting kit that i i had forgotten about so when i was getting still in the st- plastic still in the plastic so i was nice. like hoo, hoo, hoo. look at this fresh full of yeah so, so i slid into a little fresh uh fresh outfit and it was just better than ever man yeah i am um, with the wool of stuff i like with work when i i used to work outside like all the time now i've got a little bit different of a job i'm not outside as much but i was wearing like that heli hansen stuff all the time they buy it marks and now all of my heli hansen stuff's gone like i got they basically said I don't even know where it is. I just either threw it out or like packed it away. And all I do is wear wool love now. Um, I do a lot of like driving with my job. So I'm always, you know, dressed accordingly in case you break down or get stuck. Cause I'm on back roads and stuff a lot. Um, but yeah, wool love's always in the, in the back or always on my body. It seems this year. Uh, yeah. And the reason I found it was cause I was going to try and find my old stuff that was straight synthetic. And I just like was dreading. I was like, I'm going to be so hot at some point in time <laughs> in the ice shack. Yeah. Uh, but we got, we got around it. Um, and if you're interested in it, we talk about it all the time, but if you, if you haven't heard, you can get it on their website at wool.love. And if you use the code panoramic 15, that'll help get you 15% off your first order. Um, we're big fans of it. If you haven't tried it, uh, we recommend you doing it and that, that panoramic 15 will help get you into it just a little bit more affordably. Right on. Yep. And then, so yeah, our shack's got to come off soon. 
What's the date on that? March 12th. March 12th. And that's the latest that the Red River can come off because we're right by the locks where they break that. They're breaking the ice. That's why the shacks have to all come off earlier there. Oh, yeah. I think there's a later March date for the actual, like the ones on Lake Winnipeg, for example. Do you know much about the, like, being able to, there's going to like be no closure on the fishing season for like Jack and stuff this year. Is that coming out this year or next? Or do you want anything about that? Yeah, no, I think that's this year and we, we'd be well served in Manitoba to double check the regs. But <laughs> I, I, I do know that there's also like exemptions or exceptions to that, for example, like in on the Red River system, there's, there's still going to be like an all out closure. Oh, yeah. So I think that's just to help protect spawning species in a very like specific like area right so yeah it's it's almost like that like that whole thing that's hat like they're gonna keep it open and just doesn't really make sense to me like i mean i i understand what they're getting at there's lots of like let's say for instance pike there's lots of places you can go and just target pike and that's all there is there but like in reality your ice is coming off until you get that new spring water it usually takes time and i mean i don't think there'll be many fishermen anyways or anglers i guess but you know yeah, yeah. And well, I think just with the weird weather we've been having lately, it's probably hard to tell sometimes when the melt's going to be right. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. think what they're trying to do is increase the buzz around like the species where they can, recognizing like if we can get folks out for pike in the spring, that maybe, maybe that'll generate some more buzz and revenue. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, we might have to get like old Frank on. I shouldn't say old Frank; he's not old. But Frank there, uh, just because he was like one of our first guests though, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But there's uh, I don't know. I've seen it on, on social media. There's some new, maybe some new regs coming out with bird hunting. Hey. Yeah. Did you see that with a, like non, non, uh, resident and having, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's mumble jumble and I, it sounds like it hasn't been really thought out. Maybe it has, but maybe it needs some explaining too. Who knows? Yeah, that's Manitoba specific, but I would be very interested to see how that's going to work. If maybe they're just, maybe they're just altering the game bird licensing instead of like the the migratory, because I'm pretty sure the migratory stuff is all federally done. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't know what that looks like on the back end. Frank would be the one to talk to you about that right yeah so. we should reach out to him and see if he'd jump on the thing i just don't get is like the last time we had him on he's like i guess like as a province and even as a country like federal is that the the bird population is huge right now right yeah. like they're getting diseases and they're eating themselves out of house and home so um i maybe there's a lot of hunters that are complaining about pressure from non-residents coming up to hunt and freelancing instead of using guiding services i don't know but It'd be interesting to you find out it, where this started from. If I had to guess, and this is just a guess, but I think they they put out a survey in Manitoba in like the fall or something about some of this stuff. And judging from what I remember in that survey, I think they were worried about non-residents locking up a bunch of land for permission um, for the waterfowl hunts. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. A, a, there was a few questions on that survey about that, if I recall correctly yeah so i don't know but we'd have to find out some more information to see because that's the only thing i could see it being right because you're right about a lot of these populations being especially with like um some of the the, the goose populations like they're they're exploding right now so mm -hmm. i don't know 
Interestingly enough, that's kind of like some of the topic we had on the conversation today with Jen, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but before you do, we want to thank Co-op for supporting the uh, the podcast here. Um, the, we got co- most communities, I think, in Manitoba, like have some form of a co-op hanging around there. I know I use the Soaker Co-op there. Not just that, I got my like, did you get your co-op check back from your gas at all? I'm not a member anywhere to be honest. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was well, because I well, just because I was moving around, right? So yeah. Um, I should I it's actually sorry, I'm not gonna cut you off, but the not guy good. I always get co-op at the one gas station, or I always get gas at the one co-op <laughs> Brandon. I can't talk tonight. Um, but anyways, the guy that was always the cashier, he's like, Man, you should get a membership. I'm like, I know. He's like, I'm like, when I have time, I'll grab one. Yeah. But yeah, I'm oh, I'm in there every week. So well, that's that's one thing to remark. Like, clearly, you don't have to be a member to shop at Co-op. You can anyone could come, but you're you're right. You're missing out on some of the benefits because I got my my check back. Almost got a couple hundred dollars in the mail, and that that really was kind of a nice bonus. That's almost like a you know a couple cases of ammo or something like that. Come, uh, <laughs> or like well. baby food or diapers or nah. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say cases of beer, and I was like, yeah. right on, Tristan. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, beer comes, beer comes and goes around here. But yeah, you know, other thing like I, I use the the uh, Selkirk like the the food co op as well there, and it's it's under renovation. But one of my favorite things is that they've got like some of the best fried chicken in town, and it's super easy to get. <laughs> so I go in there for lunch once in a while and sneak away with some fried chicken. Nice. Um, and we got a co op giveaway going too, don't we? Yeah. By the time this comes out, we're gonna already give that away, but. We're giving away a hundred dollar gift card uh, on from Heritage Co-op, um, so use that gift card anywhere. But it's just to kind of help our followers, listeners, and whoever else uh, get out in the ice or go do something, or you know maybe go towards a renovation. It's just a little thank you from Panoramic and from Co-op for um, for helping us out. Absolutely. So check out our Instagram to to get a look at that or to follow along for more more contests, and be sure to follow Co-op on Instagram as well. Co-op. Uh, CRS and I, I'm they got a TikTok too. So, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, and and only that most I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not going to go on a limb here and say that most of the co-ops have their own Instagram, but or like social media accounts. Let's say yeah, like the so local probably, ones. Yeah, yeah. So you could probably look, search a local one, and then on there they have like what's going on in the community and sales and whatever, right? So check that out for sure. Awesome. And then anything else for you, Sheldon, leading into the next couple of weeks here? Um, not really. I was uh, just talking with Chaser there on the phone today. We we're talking a little bit about um, some of the events coming up. Like there's a bow hunting event over by his neck of the woods, I think at the end of March, early April. Oh, nice. So we're talking, about, talking about maybe going to that. And uh, it's like a banquet. I think it's a Manitoba Bow Hunter Association banquet or something. Yeah. So I think it's about 60 bucks to get to that and so that's one thing i'm going to put on the agenda and then i got that yorkton outdoor show the end of april april 29th weekend there so i've been i've been meaning to reach out to a few of the other local vendors from around here or local businesses that might be going to that like uh, craig mccarthy there from north mountain and uh um Stillwater and Verdon and a couple of the other people just see what, if, what they're if they're going and and some of their plans um but yeah, we're going to be at the Yorkton Outdoor Show. So if anybody's in Saskatchewan or the Parkland region, sorry, it is called the Parkland Outdoor Show. So come out and check us out there or see what's going on. It sounds like it's going to be a big event. It's, I think, their 10-year anniversary. So 
should be lots of people coming through so it should be a good time i've heard good things yeah i'm pretty pretty excited for it well um if there's nothing else maybe we should welcome jen to the show because i think this is a bit of a long one but it's for good cause right oh it was an awesome conversation man i loved it and so today I want to welcome Jen Shears to the podcast. And Jen, you'll have to correct me if I'm if I miss anything here, but you have quite a significant biography here. Um, n- numerous hunts under your belt, blogger, obviously like an Instagram uh, kind of media success. Speaking a lot about seal hunting and, and even polar bear hunting, which we'll talk about later. Canada hunts you've been a part of on on Wild TV as well, and even running your own natural boutique is that correct yeah that's exactly it okay wow yeah quite a bit there we're gonna have quite a bit to talk about today did i miss anything off the off the top of your head about a half a dozen things but that's okay oh no okay (laughs) you can fill us in you can fill us in along the way here it's so cool well thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me it's a real pleasure to chat with you guys yeah hey jen before tristan gets started but what's a natural boutique National Boutique is uh, basically it's a seal skin product store. So we sell okay. seal fur boots and coats and hats and mitts. And um, yeah, that's largely it. We have other furs as well, but seal is what we specialize in. Right on. Oh. Uh, I imagine we'll talk about that more when we start talking about the seal hunt and things like that. But it's interesting because we do, we have some stuff like that popping up in Manitoba now. Like we have uh, folks who are using bear products to, to start and uh, uh, capitalize that way and kind of like share the resource that way. So it's interesting to see the, the crossover in some ways. That's awesome. Yeah. And so like Sheldon was saying, we do do this segment called five burning questions. It's a, just a way for our audience to get to know the guests a little better. Um, so some people take, some people are less burning and some people are get through it a little quicker. So you don't really have a choice at this point in time. You're, you just got to buckle in. Um, I'm in. Okay. Yeah. You, so you're tuning in from Rocky Harbor and you were saying your, your hometown's Corner Brook. Can you, in, both in Newfoundland, can you tell us something cool about your hometown? Well, something cool about my hometown. Mm, it's, it's a pretty cool place to have access to sea and mountains, Newfoundland version of mountains anyway. Um, you know, they're only about, 800 meters high but that's right from sea level that you start from um and we get a lot of snow like meters and meters and meters of snow it's really a a winter playground and then beautiful in the summer too so it's it's a four season outdoor area that's a cool thing about it i guess when you say lots of snow is that like the the images we see on the news where the the highways are like walls of snow is that that kind of quantity it can be like that like i remember growing up and if you were in a one-story house you couldn't see the road because the snowbank was up past the window and if you were in a two-story house we have what we call a mother-in-law door in Newfoundland you'll drive by in the summer and there's this random door on the second floor and uh, there are no stairs or anything attached to it so for tourists we say it's the mother-in-law door oh that's funny (laughs) but uh it's useful, I guess, in the winter when the snow is that high, you can just walk right through it. So the mother-in-law door, so so like I don't, it, correct me if I'm wrong, is it so you can kick them out off the second floor or they fly in it, with their broom? It's, it's for them. It's, that well, door. that's a good point. It could be either. I think it's a summer mother-in-law door, so they step right out and smack into the ground. Oh, right on. <laughs> and I'm I'm drinking a Keith, so I know that's not from your area, but you, you had a, a local drink or something that you were 
Hinton Apple yeah, from yeah, that's right. This is from the Newfoundland Distillery, and it's a gin and blueberry and partridge berry uh, cooler of some type. It's pretty good. That sounds Cheers. awesome. <laughs> Cheers. What's up? What's a partridge berry? I don't even know if I know. I was just partridge. gonna ask that. A partridge berry. Um, it's it's like a type of a wild cranberry, I guess. Lingonberry is another word for oh, it. Oh yeah. Um, and they're pretty tart. They're not. Uh, I don't really enjoy them other than in alcoholic beverages. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a I had a buddy that actually used to fly with Chase a lot. Chase is my brother. That it's the third guy on this this show. Um, and he uh, he took a sip of Pepsi once and like kind of shook his head. He's like, man, have you ever drank that stuff straight? And I was, <laughs> so I just started laughing. I was like, yeah, he would say that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, how about something ordinary about yourself? Maybe it might shock folks I'm looking at your, your, uh, social media feed. Ordinary does not, it's not the adjective I would use. So, well, I suppose to me, everything I do is ordinary. It's just yeah. run of the mill. Um, but something that people might think is ordinary. Um, oh my goodness. I, I don't know. Maybe that I'm a hockey mom. Cool. Oh, nice. How, nice. how, uh, how old are the, the hockey players? I just have one and she's nine. Her name's Aspen. Oh, cool. Yeah. We have a lot of Aspens out here, not children, but the tree. <laughs> like a lot. Yeah. My, my grandparents met on Aspen Road, so that's kind of what spawned her name. And uh, and we knew we always wanted like a nature-based name for any children we had. So Aspen was a good fit. That's cool. Um, Tristan, those are your three questions. You already threw them? No, I th- that was only two. I asked, asked what, what the partridge drink. berry was. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. let's talk. I, got I was like, man, your questions are tough tonight, man. I know. I know this one's tough too, so I don't feel bad. I'm going to feel bad after this one. But the last one is the one that got away. And that this could be anything. This could be this could be uh, someone from your past, or that could be the the largest bull moose that you've ever seen in your life. And uh, and it uh, didn't present the shot. So do you, do you have a story yeah. like that, Jen? Yeah, I sure do. So it can't be about relationships or anything, because I've been with my husband since we were 15. So I really <laughs> don't have anything before that <laughs> Well, you were 14 once. I don't know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, I was, uh, I don't even think I knew what a boy was when I was 14. (laughs) I barely knew at 15. Um, The one that got away was without a doubt, a huge bull moose here in Newfoundland. I was archery hunting. Carrie and I, my husband were out and we had called him into literally five yards from two or three kilometers away. And I was at full draw for about a minute. And when he stopped, he stopped right behind this fallen log. And he just stopped there for 10 seconds, I would say. And like he was grunting and sniffing and going. It was incredible. Like the, the up close experience that you can get with bow hunting is wild. Then just when he realized there was nothing in it for him, he just bolted and I never did get a shot off. And me being me, I always try to be like the optimist, like, oh, that was a really cool experience. And it, and it was like, and I was really grateful to have had it trying to tell myself I didn't care that I didn't get a shot off. But after when it sunk in, I was absolutely gutted and I still am. And that was like two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think we've maybe not with a bull moose in the archery, but we've been there with elk in archery, I would say. 
just full draw and no, sometimes no draw because <laughs> we right. can't see 15 feet in front of us. But in front yeah. of you. Yeah. And I suppose like my, my first, my first elk hunt too was, uh, was something else. I was up at uh, folding with Blair and Rebecca Miller up in uh, BC. And at that time, before I began my sheep hunting journey, that was the hardest I had ever hunted was for that elk, for those elk for that week. And uh, there were at least five times when we had a bull elk like screaming at us from 15, 20 yards. And there's a six point rule up there. And so the guide I was with, he would always be going one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, I'm like, say six, say six. So many times that week, I'm like, just say six. And I was ready to shoot. And we never did get there. We belly crawled once. It was like two, you could hear these two herd bulls going at it. It was unreal. And we belly crawled, I'd say 200 yards around 20 cow elk. We were surrounded by them. It took us, I don't know, 45 minutes to do that belly crawl. And then we finally got up there to get the view of the bulls he's like they're both fives i was like no oh, no. you thought like those two bulls are going at it and they have these cows everywhere one of them has to be a six point but they were just these massive fives so that's another one that got away but um but that bull moose was legal and he was there and if i had a rifle he would have been dead 25 times but that's archery hunting that's the beauty of it i mm. guess yeah um i guess i got two questions to ask you on these five burners and I almost feel kind of dumb now because Tristan put a lot of thought into those. And that last one, I really liked him enough to write that down for the next one. Um, but my questions are a little bit goofy, I guess. But if you had one last meal, what would you have? And uh, what would you have to drink with it? Mm, a last meal. God, these are these are hard questions, though, you know. Um, <laughs> You're supposed to just, just spitball and just like, just, yeah, whatever. I, I don't know. I... I love a good burger. So like maybe an elk burger or something like that. Something that's uh, a treat that I don't get very often, but I really like. Nice. And what would you have to drink with it? I would have, well, I've never met a drink I didn't like, to be honest. So I'm not really, I'm not really particular. Um, probably a beer of some sort. Like a, I like wheat beer. So I'd have a wheat beer, I guess. Nice. Um, and then my second question of the, or the last question of the five burners is that I kind of went through your Instagram and some other things that you've uh, produced. And I've noticed that you've, you've hunted or pursued a lot of different game throughout North America and other places, but what can you give me maybe like a handful of things that you're kind of, it's always in your backpack or always in on your hip or your pocket when you go uh, pursuing some of this game? Like some of the things that we might not think of, or maybe just like a lucky charm. Do you have anything like that? Yeah. So I always have my in reach with me. That's like, that's paramount um, in case I get myself into a pickle, which can right. be known to happen on occasion. Um, <laughs> I also have, if I'm rifle hunting, I have my, uh, my, my dope card um, with all my, my ballistics and my ranges and, Okay. and all those uh those numbers um i always have a a lighter um and what else do i have i always have a bug net because they drive me crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was funny a funny story with bug nets is i was working up in churchill one time um in the summer and i didn't know about 
church like churchill is like the northern part of manitoba i didn't know about like black flies and mosquitoes at this like these amounts and we and i, I work for the utility here in manitoba and so i had to go and change a uh, like a uh, electrical meter on the side of a house and the old guy that was working there, i shouldn't call him old but like the senior guy that was working there he was like you better take a bug net it's a it's a hot you know july day and i'm like i'll be fine i've been around bugs it's only a five minute job i literally got out of that truck and i went to go change meter i couldn't even i couldn't even focus on the screwdriver like they're everywhere so i jumped back in the truck drove all the way back to the office and like yeah i guess i need that bug net and then uh, (laughs) after that when i work or play in the north i usually have a bug net for me as well yeah i i can't do without it like um and even like if you end up needing to sleep outdoors i have this huge fear of ants or spiders or whatever getting up in my face so or in my ears or whatever so I even like that's good just to sleep with it on another thing that is like important in my pack is my puffy clothes because I get so cold all the time and my uh my down um pants and and coat have have saved me um those and and hot warm uh, hand warmers like hot pods I always have those with me Keeping yeah. warm is, I mean, staying dry is part of keeping warm, but the keeping warm part is almost more important to me than the, <laughs> the staying dry. Absolutely. The, that's two things that I started putting into my like hunting regiment is uh, those hand warmers. I always, now I always have them. My cousin's been using them for years and always says like, why don't you just buy some? And I finally did the lot in the last couple of years and they're always in my gloves or, you know, even in my like hoodie pocket or whatever. And then like a good base layer, like we've been running wool love, um, like a merino wool base layer. And that's a game changer. Like love that stuff. It's really good. Yeah. My, my body doesn't, pre- I have a circulation problem called Reno. So you've probably seen people with like their, their extremities go white or yellow or purple. And I have that. And one time we were up a big horn sheep hunting, um, Carrie and I, and it was in, it was in late September. So I should have realized it was going to be potential for snow and really cold, but anyway, I, I didn't. So I only had like two or three of those hand warmers for, I don't know, we were up there. We ended up being up there like three weeks, but say a two week hunt. Anyway, Carrie didn't know that I didn't have many of them. And I was just like saving them. I, w- I was seeing how far I could get before I open up one. Cause I knew I only had like three and I was not going to use them unless it, I, I was like life or death. So I'd suffered for a week and then I wake up one morning and uh, I see a wrapper open on the floor of the tent. And I'm like, what is that? What is that? Where did that come from? He's like, oh, my toes got cold last night. So I opened one. I'm like, are you kidding me? I nearly like blew a gasket. I had been saving them. I'm like, I only have two left now. And I ended up needing both of them by the end of the trip. But yeah, I, I was so mad when I thought he just nonchalantly ripped them open. <laughs> yeah, I had the, the funny thing was this uh, year, I bought like a big bulk pack of them. There was like 48. It wasn't that big, but a 48 pack of them. And I put them in my dad's shop because we deer hunt at my dad's. I put them in his shop. And I had them like kind of tucked away and I showed him. I said, hey, if you ever need like hand warmers, there's a bunch here. Just grab whatever. He's, wow, what do you need those for? <laughs> like trying to be tough. And I think I only used like maybe eight or 10 of them. And at the end of the year, I was like, went to go grab some. There's none left. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell? Like, who's tough now? But anyway. That's awesome. Uh, you mentioned your spot there, Jen. That's that's the, that's the like SOS, a two-way communication kind of satellite. Uh, yeah. Hope. 
yeah it is you know it'd be really funny is if you were hunting with another party and you only brought one spot and you like went into different locations and then one of you got stranded so you could not communicate to each other that would be bad that would yeah. be really bad oh goodness yeah well that that's a consideration for sure isn't it yeah i would yeah. recommend that those parties bring two spots with them if they were ever to go up to a northern manitoba location and hunt. okay well here's the thing tristan is that oh we oh, thought... you, oh you've had that happen oh i'm just i'm on an inside yeah. joke here now yeah. <laughs> well the thing was we went on a trip and yes we only had one but our thing was is like we got in really big trouble we could just hit the sos button no, but yeah in hindsight we should have had two but we only had one yeah when the other person is the one that needs the sos button it doesn't work out so well no no <laughs> But my partner had the, had the in reach or whatever it was. He had the SOS thing. So I felt safe. The other two guys probably didn't. <laughs> uh, live and learn. Um, so yeah, you made it through the five burners. Congratulations. That's uh, with ease and grace, which is awesome. Um, and then we can talk a little bit of hunting here coming up. But I was, I was wondering, like you, you essentially made i don't is a career safe to say out of kind of your your outdoor enthusiasm here everything yeah i mean i haven't made a career out of hunting um by any stretch of the imagination but um everything that we're into business wise and lifestyle wise is intimately linked to the outdoors and to nature and to renewable resources and using them sustainably so Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's part of who we are and it's part of what we do so yeah that's a fair statement i would say that's so cool maybe we can also talk about how folks can realistically do that for themselves too because i we we as like as we have a podcast but we're we're kind of we have our day jobs on the side too but so many people we talk to are interested in like furthering their their involvement in in the outdoors in some way and and trying to make a go of it so that, that might be valuable information but where did it kind of start for you um, like, was there, was, was, was it with the family or was it, was there another avenue into hunting for you and like the outdoor kind of experience? Yeah. My upbringing in Cornerbrook, as I mentioned, is an amazing four season. Well, in Newfoundland, we have, I don't know, we don't have much of a spring or a summer, so maybe a two season, <laughs> um, upbringing location. So my childhood, like my earliest memories are of shooting a 22 off the patio at our cabin at a rock in the pond. Like that's what my four-year-old, five-year-old self remembers about my youth being out and my parents, my mom included, my nan, my aunts, all, all were outdoors people and hunters. And we'd be in the cabin and my nan would disappear for the day and she'd just be off on her wildlife watching walks or her plant scoping walks. And she'd show up and at the end of the day, we'd ask her what she'd done. And she was just all day in nature by herself. Hmm. Um, so like, I remember mom and dad and being with them with moose hunts and bear hunts and rabbit catching and everything and fishing. So it, it's, it's almost like it wasn't even a decision I had to make Mm. as an adult. It was just, that was, that was what I knew as life. And, and I had a pretty great childhood. So I, I wanted to continue that as an adult. And um, when I started dating Carrie, he was very much in the outdoors as well when we were 15 and we'd spend our time um, together, like rabbit catching and duck hunting and, and being outdoors. So that carried on through and he ended up doing a taxidermy course in Calgary actually went up there. It's like the only certified school in Canada for taxidermy. It was at that time. Anyway, I don't know about now. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
Yeah, he came back and opened, we opened a taxidermy studio and he was guiding moose hunters from the States and everything. And from that, we opened a wildlife museum here in Rocky Harbor. It's a big tourist town here. Uh, we have like 900 people who live here, but between May and September, we get 160,000 visitors. Nice. So the wildlife museum is a big draw for visitors. And then we opened accommodations from that. And then the, the boutique with the fur products stem from the gift shop at the museum and we just set up on the other side of the island in the in the capital there St. John's area with like 200 300,000 people. What's the what's the name of the wildlife museum? Sorry not to cut you off. Yeah, it's Grossmoren Wildlife Museum. So Grossmoren is the name of the national park here and uh it's the major draw for visitors and so it's Grossmoren Wildlife Museum. Wow. And how did that come about? Like, that's that's not just like something that comes out of nowhere, I'm sure. No. Well, when we opened the taxidermy studio, we found that in the summer we couldn't get any work done because all the tourists were coming in and they were fascinated with the moose heads no on the wall. Way. Yeah. Yeah. So we thought, well, frig, if moose heads on the wall fascinate people, we can do something to really knock their socks off. So that's when we got the idea to do all the dioramas. So there's life-size moose and caribou and a polar bear and black bears climbing trees and it's all in scenes. So it's all seasons and all landscapes from the tops of the mountains to the bottom of the ocean. And yeah, it's been, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. What's, it, what's it, the feedback like? Out. Sorry. The yeah, feedback, no, it's, it the sounds like it's wonderful. Positive, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it sure. People, is. Are, people are just in awe when they come into this place. Yeah, yeah. You walk in and it smells like the outdoors and it looks like the outdoors, but it's not the outdoors. And it's really cool because people come to see moose largely here in Newfoundland and in Grossmorn and, because of a population reduction strategy in the national park, um, because moose were destroying the forest here because there was no predator for them because we didn't have a hunt. It's a national park, so typically you don't have a hunt. So since we did start a hunt in the national park, um, there's less and less moose for people to see. So they're kind of disappointed. So it gives them an opportunity to see them. And even if you do see a moose, if you're cruising by at 80 kilometers an hour, you don't really get a sense of how big they are. So when they're in the wildlife museum, like the life size, you can stand up next to it and really get an idea of how big these creatures are. And it, it kind of gets you up close and personal with, with nature. Yeah. That's, that's kind of cool too, because uh, I know like in my experience this summer, okay, first thing I'm going to say is now you're the second person on the podcast that has a museum. Um, oh. We had Jim Shockey on, so he has a museum on the West. Over oh, I know Jim Shockey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, the, that's the funny thing that I was going to say is I was at a lodge this summer with work. I was staying at the Kissing Lake Lodge and there's a few people there that were there fishing, but had no kind of idea about how big the moose were. And we're in the like lounge part having a drink and we're kind of chit-chatting with them. And the one guy was looking at the moose above the fireplace, just a, a head mount. And he's like, there's no way those are that big. Like that's like, that's like an enlarged mount. Hey. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, that's, they're that big and way bigger. Like it was only a, you know, maybe a 50 inch moose. I'm like, you know, they get up to 60 and like up in Alaska and Yukon, like 70 inches. And he just, he was like blown away the entire time. Like he thought this thing was like enlarged so that you could look at it. It's like, <laughs> so no, like they're this it. big. It's crazy. It's, it's wild. And then you think that he can somehow get 70 inch racks through trees that have a six inch space between them i don't know how that works <laughs> that's always a mystery it is <laughs> jen i want to ask you more about the the museum and, and the things beyond that in a minute but uh i'm i'm also real curious about 
kind of the the hunting culture in Newfoundland because often when we see stuff on television or even through other forms of media, it tends to be like BC, the Yukon, Alberta, even like whitetail hunting or waterfowl hunting in Saskatchewan has been featured. But I don't always see a lot of stuff about Newfoundland, but obviously epic moose hunting, but sounding like from the sounds of your upbringing there, like the, the hunting is very ingrained in, in the community and things like that. Was, was that kind of like, was your upbringing kind of par for the course for where you were? Or was that, was that the usual and like, uh, how did that influence you? Pretty much the usual, I would say, probably maybe less and less now as more people move towards the quote unquote city as is happening everywhere, I guess, urbanization. But the, um, the thing about Newfoundland is we don't, we have a lot of individuals in terms of animals, but not a lot of species. So for big game hunting, we really only have moose, woodland, caribou, and black bear. So our hunting as a population, as residents is, is not more diversity of species or trophy hunting in terms of taxidermy. It really is um, a food hunt and moose themselves were introduced to Newfoundland back in 1904 as a source of food for Islanders. And um, I mean, the moose have done really well and they've gotten really big in some locations, but the, the whole idea behind it is that we are an Island food security is a big deal. Like we can see with pandemics, transportation can get cut off with big weather events like back in I think right before the pandemic in, in January, 2020, we had what was called snowmageddon. I think six feet of snow fell in 48 hours. And after things got done, it was like a state of emergency on the East coast of the island for multiple days, the military had to come in. And when the first things that started opening up open, things like grocery stores were among the first, there were literal mile long lineups to get into the grocery store. And I was thinking, man, I wouldn't need to go line up in a mile long line for food at at a grocery store. Like, thankfully I've got my freezer full. I could live for three, four months if I needed to (laughs) and my community for that long, if I needed to, with what I have in my freezer. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's less and less of it. I, I would say because of the urbanization, but the whole premise of Newfoundland being an Island, us having animals introduced here to sustain the population and, and, um, being aware that food security is a real issue even today, I think it's even further enhancing what we may have lost in hunting culture. But it's still it's still very big. I, I think uh, there's like thirty five thousand moose licenses issued every single year in oh, wow. on the island. Yeah, something like that. So it is quite big. And what was that like, like at the community level to have the transition of of the moose hunt open up in the national park? Because uh, up here, like. If I do anything in the national park, I don't want to say it's annoying because I get like the the need for like certain boundaries and restrictions. But like, even if I want to wash launch my boat and in, in, in a national park, it's like it has to be inspected. They're they're probably mm-hmm. inspecting what gasoline I I have put in the if it has to be a ninety eight percent ethanol and things like like I'm being facetious, but like there's quite no, a different standard, true. right? Yeah. Well, the park was established here in, around Rocky Harbor in Gross Morn in 1973. So there's still a full generation or two of people who were experienced pre-national park and post-national park. And it, it very much cut off communities. Like we can't access wilderness that we can 
you know, do our regular, all of our regular activities unless we travel through the park. So we're kind of, we're really caught off from that. And now when the park was established at the same time, they did do a fair job of consulting with the province and with the residents to make sure that certain traditional activities could continue like uh, domestic timber harvesting, for example. So there's certain blocks in the national park that people can still go in and cut their wood to heat their homes because wood stoves are a very right. popular source of heat still here in Newfoundland. And um, so when you're talking about a hunt, there's certainly a lot of consultation that needs to happen, but when you think about the whole reason that national parks exist, it's to protect native species, whether that be plants or animals. And we had a scenario where an introduced species in the moose was eliminating native species in certain types of trees um, because they target certain types of trees. They like early successional forests. So once an area has been cleared either through cutting or through insect kill or whatever, they flock to those areas with the new growth. And um, we were seeing a lot of that because insect kills are a major source of forest regeneration here on the West Coast of Newfoundland. And uh, those early successional, those new trees are moose's preferred foods. So they were killing off all of those. Um, and when, when they looked at it that way and presented the facts and the studies, um, it, it was kind of a no brainer. We needed to do something that this issue wasn't happening outside the park because there was predation through hunting. So the way we could restore balance within the park was to have the, the hunt happen. So we were at a, we were at a point, I think we're in the national park. There were some areas with 27 moose per square kilometer. <laughs> like oh, wow. it was, it was, yeah, it was unreal i don't even think we have whitetail numbers like that in some areas yeah that that's what some of the highest numbers were at like i remember even when i started really coming down here um in you know around 99 2000 in a 30 kilometer stretch of road i would see i think my my record was 67 moose on the oh, road wow. it was like a gauntlet you were swerving trying to avoid them like almost like a fear factor type show <laughs> to get them to just get them to drive the road and bring Joe Rogan in. <laughs> um, and now it's not like that, thankfully. And it, we may have been, I say we, the, the park may be, may have been a few years behind when they should have had the hunt. But as you know, a hunt is not just something you can open up in a national park. It, there's a, there's a procedure that needs to happen. And so they did it as early as they possibly could. Well, you could you could open it up in the park. You just might be spending a few years behind bars if you if you do it without the consultation first. Actually, I know there's a few people that have probably spent a few years, or at least had their hunting privileges revoked for being on the yes. wrong side of that boundary. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, national parks a whole other ball game. Yeah, the, the thing that comes to my mind there, Jen, is that. Um, like you said that like the moose didn't really have many predators, but like as as far as I know, and and maybe you can talk a little bit on it is like black bears are the biggest killer of like elk and moose calves. Um, and you, you did mention there's, there's, is there like the bear population there? Isn't that great? Or it is getting like bigger. Have you noticed anything like that way? Can I just preface this too? I'm really excited that Jen's on for this because of the environmental biology aspect too. So we can assume that she's an authority on all this content as well. well. No, I'm just like, no, no, I know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm serious. Like she's yeah, so like, I mean, it, it's, there's more weight to the, the comment than maybe uh, 
if we were just asking uh, Josh McFadden, let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Makes sense. Well, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I did. I actually just finished uh, my degree that I started literally 22 years ago in environmental biology. I had two courses left and I did work for Parks Canada for 15 years or so. So nice. it, it was ever. part of, it was part of my work, but um, yeah, so bears aren't really a main predator of, of moose here, I would say. Maybe maybe caribou more so than moose, but really our bears here, we get so many berries and things like that. Like that's the majority of their diet um, right. in, our, in our growing season when they're awake but and up and about. Langdon berries. Langdon berries, yeah. Those are more on bogs. Blueberries, and oh. I would say is like their absolute favorite um in the in the fall of the year blueberries are a bit late coming but you'll see the bears in the in the barrens just with their heads down like a vacuum cleaner going back and forth back and forth and covering the whole hillside pretty cool to see um but yeah no really the the main source of predation is humans is, is hunting that's the only main yeah. mechanism for population control for moose on the island hmm. that's we interesting. used to have we used to have a wolf in newfoundland Back in the eight, up until the 1800s. Or like uh, <laughs> a wolf like Larry, Larry, man. And Larry was good. <laughs> when I say a wolf, I mean a a subspecies, our own subspecies of wolf, the Newfoundland wolf. And um it, it had a big population in the 1800s, but you know, in those days it was like more so the big bad wolf than, than it is nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of fear around them for human safety and stuff and i think they were hunted to extinction unfortunately so um yeah they're we do have coyotes now but coyotes have more of an impact on on caribou the so like i guess the other question or the another side question i have that popped in was so was there ever with this like booming moose population was there ever talk about reintroducing the wolf to to like the island at all or no like that's just no they i don't think so because the booming population was great for food security and for hunting where the issue was was in the national park Mm, Um, so 1805 square kilometers of our vast island um that's where the the issue was concentrated and And so rather than introducing another introduced species a hunt basically yeah. takes care of the problem and feeds the residents at the same time. Right. And the, so, it, so far, when, when did the hunt open up? Sorry, you have to refresh me. The hunt in the park, you mean the national yeah. park? Yeah. Yep. I'd, I'd say probably, t- gosh, 10 or 15 years ago now. Yeah. And as far as folks can tell, it's been a pretty effective management tool is, is what you've said here. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely has been. I think the population uh, went from probably 8,000 in the park down to, I think the latest numbers were around 2,000. And uh, that's still, I think they could still use or they still want more to be taken. Wow. Um, but they they issue a lot of licenses. But the, the problem, I guess, with um, hunting in the national park is you're not allowed to use any motorized vehicles to retrieve them (laughs) (laughs) unless Uh, another unique thing about gross morn is that in the winter we can snowmobile in the national park oh cool so if the season ends like january 28th to 30th depending on the year and if the snow cover is is deep enough um in january then they'll open it up so that you can go in on snowmobile so you can bring the moose out that way so a lot of people around here just wait until the snow falls to go moose hunting 
Right. And I, I've seen a few archery moose on your, your feed. So were you packing those out or were those in other locations? Those were in other locations near, oh. near the park. There are enclaves. So when the park was established, there were provincial lands set aside. So we're surrounded by the park, but it's not like Banff where the, the community is part of the park. Our communities are just surrounded by the park. There's still provincial land. So there still is a separate area for moose hunting in those enclaves, we call them. And you can retrieve animals with a, a, a motorized vehicle. You can't hunt with them, but if you get one down, then you can go in with a motorized vehicle and take them out. Hmm. So that's where I was. You'll send us a pin. Awesome. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, sp- speaking of wildlife strategies, though, and kind of management strategies, like I was surprised to hear that the, the moose were that far kind of overpopulated in, in Newfoundland. Like we, we don't have that problem in Manitoba. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we're we're trying to fight the other problem, which is we're losing moose in what would be traditionally um, moose habitat up here, um, and they're popping up in weird spots. But there there, there seems to be it's it's good to hear that hunting had an, a positive impact on that population because there there's often a lot of myths. I'm sure you're aware with like the role hunters play, not just from the harvest perspective, but the role in ecology the role in society, the, the, and you mentioned food security a number of times, and that, that almost seems to get dropped from the debate altogether, but often, but uh, you've been a part of some pretty, like what we would like in Manitoba, we would consider like different hunts and um, like looking at the, the seal hunt, it, it seems to be a lightning rod for, for controversy for some reason, but uh, maybe we could start there. Like, do you, do you think there's a reason why the seal hunt attracts so much? Is it Disney that we've got all these like big eyed animals that, that exist in the world that are, are cute and cuddly and are, are not supposed to be part of an ecosystem that where things kill and do the killing or like, why, why is the seal hunt such a, a hot button issue? Oh, the seal hunt. It's a topic that when I hear it, I, there's so many thoughts come in my head. Like it's, it's so important. So misunderstood. You're quite um, tapped into the, the seal hunting culture too. Like we should say, it's not just some like, yes. you're not just watching it on, on CBC news at six o'clock. You're... <laughs> no, exactly. It's something that we live and we breathe. So the main reason or reasons why um, seal hunting is such a target. I will say, first of all, is they are on white ice, snow and white ice. So imagine if you laid a white carpet underneath a deer when it got shot, what would that look like? It it would be a friggin' mess of blood, right? Like it, it's striking white blood on red ice or, or red blood on white ice is, is striking and it can be shocking. So that sets the stage right away for perfect propaganda material. Second of all, seals are the, the young ones, uh, maybe the older ones too, but the young ones are really cute. They're big, dewy-eyed, white little creatures. And um, funny enough, they're not the ones that we hunt. The white coat seal hunt has been banned since 1987. Um, so even though the image is still being used and the image is being used by um anti-groups because again they're cute and it it brings in money i always tell carrie if we were in it for big big money 
we would be on the other side of it, lying about the seal hunt, because it's easy to get people to empty their wallets and send money at you when you're lying about it with a cute thing as your uh, poster child. And another thing about the seal hunt that makes it really attract the aunties and a lot of hate is the tools that are used for it. So it's, it's the biggest PR conundrum I think I've ever heard of hunting or not in that when you hunt a seal, you actually need to take a course. You need to take a day long course on how to properly dispatch of a seal. Like I've hunted around the world and I've never ever had to take like a species or a genus specific course on how to dispatch of a particular animal. But with seals you do, and, and you need to take that course, which was developed by veterinarians and scientists to ensure that when you do hunt the seal, that you're dispatching of it in a way that's deemed humane by veterinarians and scientists to appease the anti-groups who said we were skinning and taking the meat off the seals while they were still alive. So part of that course you need to take talks about the three steps that you need to do when you hunt a seal. So the first is you shoot it. The second, you need to walk up to it and palpate the skull. So you need to touch the skull and make sure that the entire skull is obliterated. Basically it's crushed. You want to make, because that's part of making sure that the seals aren't conscious. Even if you shoot it in the head, which is where you aim and there's no head left on it, you need to walk up to it. Cause if there's helicopters of, of observers and of DFO enforcement officers looking and you don't walk up to show that you're touching to make sure the head is crushed, you will be charged. It, that's how regulated and enforced it is. Once you do touch the skull, if you do feel that there, and there is still a skull sometimes if, if you didn't shoot it right in the head, if one portion of the skull is left intact, you by law, because veterinarians and scientists have said it's part of a humane method of dispatching of them, you need to hit it on the head with a hack a pick. So a hack a pick is like a, a club basically for, for people that are listening. It, it's, a, it's a big tool, uh, like a bat almost. And it's very, the rules are very prescriptive on how much it can weigh, what the dimensions need to be. And you need to hit it on the head to crush both sides of the cranium. So that tool and the whole image of a sealer hitting a seal on the head, that's another reason why it draws the ire of people. I, again, biggest PR disaster I've ever heard of because that is the epitome for the antis of what's brutal about the seal hunt. Yet we do it to ensure the hunt is humane. Right. So, so I, like, I can't, I still can't wrap my head around how we get ourselves out of that situation. But then after that's done, you hit it on the head. The third step is you need to sever the arteries underneath the flippers. So in the armpits and have the seal bleed out. And that that's just a flood of red blood on the white ice from the helicopter. It, it's, it's shocking. Um, so if you have an, an anti-group that's flying over, you're providing them by, by trying to be humane and severing those arteries and making sure it's bled out. You're providing them with the ammunition they need to say that you're being barbaric. Only once those three steps are completed, can you proceed to remove the fur and the meat from the seal? <laughs> this is the thing. I've got it figured out. So okay, so what year was it? 1980? I know. 1987, you said? They... Yes. Yeah. So in 1987, this is what happened. They had a group of scientists and veterinarians Half of them were aunties and they're like, hey, let's figure out a way that we can make this look like like brutal so that it's always going to be an issue. And then maybe someday they'll get rid of the seal hunt. 
That's the only thing I can think of because in my mind, once you shoot an animal, it's almost like you're like, I don't know what it's called. Like there's a word for it, but like once you shoot an animal and then you like kind of fuck with it, you know what I mean? Like you're cutting right. it up already. Like that right. just doesn't seem. And I mean, if you shoot something in the head as a hunter or anybody else that thinks about it, 99.9% oh. of the time, it's going to be dispatched. Like you don't have to break his cranium. You, you don't oh, have man. to do that. That drives me wild. I can't believe this. So the whole, the whole process, I think, came from a place of being naive and thinking that if we did things to combat the aunties' claims, that they might become okay with it. They might come on side. And then in turn, what ended up happening was probably the exact opposite. Now, it, it, does, it, is, like, it is a best practice. I mean, it's this, this three-step process has been covered in peer-reviewed journals. And it has been demonstrated that the seal hunt is equally, if not more humane than any of the other, um, I think, wild or captive slaughters that happen. Um, so it, I think it came from a, a good place, a well-intentioned place, mm -hmm. but these people make too much money to change their, their tune on it. There's a documentary called My Ancestors Were Rogues and Murderers. Anne Troke did it. She, her family was a sealing family from out in central Newfoundland. And um, in that film, one of the Troke men said that there was an animal rights activist who came to Newfoundland who went out on the sealing vessels because they said, let us show you how it is. And she actually changed her tune on it. And she said, I'm going to go back to IFA, I think it was at the time, International Fund for Animal Welfare. And I'm going to tell them that sealers aren't barbarians. They care about the animals. They're doing it the right way. And maybe if we can get those messages out and, and it contributes to economy and food security, that they can become on board with it and maybe maybe designated a, a sustainable or an IFA accepted initiative. Anyway, she got fired <laughs> as oh, soon as she went back and suggested that um, she was no longer with them. So the plans to set up any designation or whatever certification gone because they didn't want to hear tell of it. So I always say you can't, uh, you can't make sense out of nonsense and you can't talk rationally to people who don't want to hear rationality because they just have dollar signs and emotion at, uh, in, in their minds. So that's the unfortunate part about it. I might've missed something here, but did you say that the three-step process is you like, you think that's the best way to do it as well? Well, I think that it's, it shows that we are willing to invest time and effort in trying to do what scientists and veterinarians have said is a surefire way to ensure it's done humanely, a, a surefire right. way to ensure that seals aren't being skinned and meat taken when they're still alive. Right. So it's, liter it's, it's literally overkill. Like yeah. It's the literal definition of overkill. As overkill. Like yeah. So yeah. Has, has there been talks of like any type of change in those three steps that maybe like, do one and then give it 10 minutes or something. I'm actually on a committee right now, which is looking at how we can get more sealers um, to, to take up the, uh, the hunt. And there's a whole bunch of things that we're looking at. I, I don't, I don't think that the three-step process is anything that, um, that will change, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm okay. I'm okay with that. We can say that we're doing it the proper way. 
and we have science to back that up for us. It's more about like getting, getting, allowing youth and, and everyone to be in, involved because right now you can't bring your child out to come and participate in it. So we know if you don't involve children early in outdoor pursuits, it's, they're a lot less likely to take it up as adults. So, so no, I don't, I don't think that that, that is going to change. And I, I mean, regardless that the blood and, and all that um, is going to be there if you just shoot them anyway, but yeah, yeah. the whole hack a pick thing and, and the animal rights groups have been convicted in court for paying people to do inhumane things to seals. And they've been ordered to cease the distribution of those videos, but we know how the internet is now these days. And once it's out there, that's it. So mm. it's just the, the money isn't there from the, like anything, the primary producer doesn't have the money to fight the people that, that make the big uh, dollars off of lying about it. Yeah. Like the thing that I just find crazy is that uh, in no doubt in my mind in 1987, when they decided to have this group, that was like what they came up with and they, when they went with it and everyone's like, okay, fine. Like, let's do that. If that's the best mm -hmm. way to do it, which I totally get. And like, I think of it as in a way of if I went deer hunting next fall in Manitoba and they said, well, you know, after you shoot your deer, you got to go <laughs> up there and slit its throat. I would do it because that's, I love deer hunting and that's part of my diet is uh, like venison and whitetail. What I'm trying to get at in a long story short here is that like, you'd almost assume that like what 30 years later or whatever, you could almost like relook at it and be like, Hey, is this really what we need to do to be ethical? Right. Or following the rules and, and not only that, but like even getting those, those anti hunters and, and stuff, like, I know you'd never be able to get in the same room with them and come up with an idea with whoever, but it's just like, I don't know. Joe Rogan said it actually in one of his comedy things. He's like, Oh man, you like, if you, uh, you know, die or whatever, and they come up to you, he's like, Oh, you haven't changed any of the things that I wrote with a feather, like 800 years ago or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like you're still yeah. following all these rules they wrote hundreds right. of years ago, but hundreds anyways, ago. yeah. So like, anyways, that's my rant for now. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, I do have a couple of questions too. And they're like more from the ethical side and I guess like one is like, and this might not even be a question. This is just more a reflection of myself. Like the, the coup de gras of hunting is like one of my most, I don't want to say feared, but like, I just don't enjoy that part of hunting. If it's uh for animals, if I can make it on the first shot and uh, it's uh, whether that's with a bow or a gun, you know, I'm always, almost always happier that way. So that even the thought of me having to walk around and, like feel the skull and like go the next level like that, that would bug me. I'm not sure if I could do that, but like, I think where the question in my mind comes in is it, it, it brings up some really interesting ethical conversations, even internally within the hunting community um, around things like fair chase, for example, fair chase is a huge conversation out West where you have wide open spaces and everyone can be like fair chase, fair chase, no high fences and things like this. Right. And, and people are very adamant about it. And I'm, I'm not going to say that that's not the case with the seal hunt, but I, I can also see just how culturally important it is, how as humans, like we almost co-evolve the species to, to an extent to, to like, um, to, to be a part of that ecosystem in, in so many ways that we, that's what we subsist off of was maybe this, the seal hunt in this region. And so 
do things like fair chase just really not make sense in this context or what do you make of that? Because like to me that the seal hunt makes perfect sense, but it doesn't jive with some of these other concepts of ethical hunting that we, we like to wave around to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of fair chase is, is almost like a, a new concept and new in that it's not anything that we heard of because it's just what we did in Newfoundland. Everything is crown land. There's mm. no private land anywhere. Like when I started hunting in off the Island and then I was with a guide or whatever, and they say, Oh, we need to check with this landowner to see if it's okay for us to go on. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of that before. I like ask mm. someone if you can hunt on their land. We don't, we don't have that. That's not a thing. You basically own the land that your house and your cabin is on and, and the rest is fair game, fair chase. The thing that probably makes seal hunting not fair chase is that there's too many of them. So, right. so if you if you go out in a boat and you end up on to on the herd, there's like there's literally seven to ten million harp seals off the coast of Newfoundland. Like that's mm. how many there are. Um, so so yeah, it's you're it, but it's still fair chase in a sense, because you're limited by the size of your boat. You're not out there in big boats. I think they need to be under 65 feet or anything like that. Okay. Okay. Both interesting. Inshore fishing boats, um, which are like 34, 34 11s, we call them under 35 feet. So there's only so many that you can put on board. And um, yeah, like, again, the whole idea of fair chase or high fencing isn't, isn't really a thing. The close we would, the closest we would come to that maybe in Newfoundland would be bear baiting. Um, yeah. and that, that concept, but in terms of fencing and, and all that, no, it's not even really a consideration here. How, why are they so overpopulated? Do you have any insight into that? Like that, that seems like yeah. I, I, when I looked at that, the fact that they were that overpopulated, it, it, because even up north too, I think one of the concerns is for the polar bears is that the the way the sea ice is moving, that the, the seal won't be a, a steady uh, dietary thing for them where we are. Um, any insight as to why they're overpopulated on on your side of the the sphere? Yeah, there? I sure do. So humans have coexisted and have been the management tools for seals for many generations, going back several hundred years at least here on the coast of Newfoundland and. When the animal rights groups got onto the bandwagon of putting down the seal hunt and going ahead of us to other countries and closing down markets, the price of a seal pelt plummeted. So in the 70s and 80s, it became no longer feasible for commercial hunters to go out at it because they would be spending more on fuel and on wages than what they would actually get for the seals that they were taking. So that has continued the last 20 odd years for, for the most part, I would say, um, maybe 30 years. There was a, a time when it increased in price uh, about 20 years ago, but for, for the vast majority of that time, there's been no market. So no incentive for the sealers to go out there. So there's no real predators for, for seals. Our quota, it, it's, it's kind of staggering. Our quota for harp seal is 400,000. That's Holy. what that's what DFO scientists have said is the number that should be taken to keep the population in in check sustainable. The past few years, 25, 30,000 are being taken just because the prices aren't there. So now we're finding seals going up into rivers and going after salmon or 
they're going down to the benthos diving and you you see sealers cut open the stomach of the seals and there's like a hundred juvenile crab in their bellies so mm-hmm. they're resorting to eating things that they never ate before because they're basically eating themselves at a house and home and they're coming into towns a guy posted a video the other day of a seal like several kilometers from the ocean on his on his logging road for his skidoo like he was like what are you doing here seal he was talking to the seal like trying to figure out how to get it back to the ocean several kilometers away so it the difference is definitely that humans were the population control mechanism for many 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 years and that's no longer the case and we're not taking as many as we need to to keep Mm -hmm. the population under control i know i'm preaching to the choir here but it really feels like there's and I, I, I get that we want to be compassionate and understanding to most folks' views and differences of opinions and things like that. But it, it does feel like sometimes when we're when we hone in on just one species so tightly or we hone in on one act with one species so tightly that we miss the broader picture. And often that broader picture is not that humans are separate from the ecosystem, but we're we're in fact very ingrained in the ecosystem. Um, and the more we kind of push back against that and pretend that we're, we're not part of the the life and death cycle of this planet the the worse the results seem to be kind of like we we don't take that big picture look and like you said now all of a sudden there's because we were so concerned about the way one seal looks and how that that imagery looks of when that death happens and we completely forget of all the other kind of ripple effects of us changing our behavior or changing an ecosystem through either an act or omission kind of occurs. Am I crazy or? No, you're, <laughs> you're spot on. Like when I think about it, the hate that I get online comes in waves. It's like one animal rights activist will share a post to their huge following and then I'll get the onslaught and then it'll go quiet for a while. And then someone else will share something and it'll, it'll come again. But the common theme that I see is lack of holistic thinking and lack of critical thought. Lack of holistic thinking in exactly what you're saying, that we are part of the ecosystem. We are no better, no worse. We are just part of it. And 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 just, just thinking long-term, really, thinking about the implications. Like at, our, at my store, at the boutique, um, where we sell the seal products, we have protesters come down every so often. And... I'll go out there and I'll interact with them and I'll say, like, what, what are you guys doing? Think about it. You're out here protesting that we have fur products, which are renewable. Mm-hmm. They come from an abundant resource. Seals are nowhere near um, endangered. They're overpopulated. They're actually in danger of harming themselves because there are so many. And the, the, the products fur is biodegradable. So when you're done with your pair of boots, aside from this small rubber sole at the bottom, the rest of it, you can compost it. You're out here head to toe in pleather or plastic or whatever you're wearing, even if it's cotton, how, how many acres of land need to be clear cut and how many, how much animal habitat are you destroying? Mm-hmm. Not to, not counting the shipping of all those things to us from faraway countries. But when you're done with that plastic clothing, it's going to end up eventually back in the ocean. And that one piece of clothing is going to kill probably 10 or 20 seals as it, as it kills one and then goes back in the ecosystem, kills another, goes back in the ecosystem, kills another. So 
one, one seal has died for my boots and then it'll be composted and your boots are probably gonna kill, who knows, six, 10, 20 seals or other marine animals, who knows? Yeah, you'd mentioned holistic thinking and big picture thinking. I think both are super important. And I think, you know, the maybe the third pin in the wheel there, whatever your third spoke, whatever you want to call it is, um, you know, the, even the connection to the ecology, right? Because when you're, when you're maybe removed from it, you can kind of look at it and, and look at it through the Disney eyes and say, oh, that, that seals real cute. Um, why would we ever want to kill that? And, of and, course. and if you and I know, at least that, that that's not the way <laughs> I've, I, at least I've never conceived of it that way. I've never been like, oh, that thing's really cute. I want to, uh, I want to eat it. Like that's, it's just like, it's for us, at least for hunters, as far as I understand, it's, it's typically always like a deep cultural connection or, or this, this drive to want to be closer to your, your food and your existence in so many ways. So um, it's interesting to think that sometimes folks who are most removed from that process feel most compelled to comment on it. And they often have the most sway because they live in the big cities and they have access to the internet 24 seven. When we're up in the mountains, being one with nature, I'm lucky if I can get a text out on my little machine, let alone that's, be, you know, on the internet all day, every day. And that's why you carry two spots, Jen, <laughs> two yeah, spots, indeed. not one. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to mention too, is like, I've, listen to a few quite a few podcasts about like one side or the other anti-hunting versus hunters or whatever it may be and like i don't know if you've ever seen that youtube video of steve Rinella at a book signing and um and it seemed like an anti-hunter or whatever you want to call oh yeah it was a vegan like i think if you google steve Rinella argues with vegan yeah and and he he puts it like really in in good terms is like the vegan, he just basically tells them like, you're thinking of the deer and I'm thinking of the whole group of deer. And I, and he goes on and says, I care more about those deer than you ever will. And you want to save one deer because I'm going to hunt it and eat it. Do you know what I mean? And that like brings me a lot of thoughts about this seal um, hunt and everything that you've been talking about so far tonight. And it's just like, it's such a slippery slope though, because you want to try to educate people but those people don't want to be educated or they think that your education is as good as what they think. And it's just like, well, no, it's just like, it's like nature's education. You just got to be around it to see it. And people aren't right. So. Yeah. I find like, if I don't always have time to engage with people, but if I, if I smell blood or smell weakness, I'm always happy to <laughs> probe them a little bit. Like oh, for example, for sure. I was at, I was at a trade show once with our seal products. This was in Halifax or no, it was in Fort McMurray. And um, a lady came up to me and she started with, you should be ashamed of yourself. And I was like, Oh, okay. Why is that? And then she started coming up with seals or, endangered and you kill the baby seals and basically just regurgitating what PETA has told her over the years. So when I think, when I hear that and I'm like, okay, well, she's wrong in so many accounts and maybe I can, you know, ease my way into a conversation. By the time I was finished talking with this lady, because I had patience and didn't just say like, break off, go away, missus. Yeah. She ended up buying a pair of boots before she left. No way. That's a hundred percent a true story. She said at the end, she was really upset that she had been lied to 
and that she had bought into the propaganda and that we were doing the right thing and that she would gladly be able to compost her boots when she was done with them and all the all the lies that she was fed yeah so started off with you should be ashamed of yourself and she left buying a pair of boots see i would have opened just with yeah i i am ashamed of myself actually i I carry a lot of shame so thanks for that (laughs) thanks for for pointing that out what what else what aspect of the shame do you want to talk about (laughs) (laughs) thank god you're here (laughs) yeah i needed you (laughs) um jen you don't you don't strike me as a stupid person and that's an understatement um but like you're with the boutique here and and the way things are moving you know my partner has a pair of seal skin shoe uh slippers that are like probably the warmest slippers i've ever seen on her i stuck my hand in there and they're they're super warm and sheldon do you have a pair of seal skin gloves yeah a pair of gauntlets that i got made up in uh, churchill yeah and they're they're just deadly too like unbelievable are you, are you feeling like a turn of the tide here? Like I, uh, in a lot of ways, like I said, there was the, like, there's a, the bear products coming around in Manitoba. It seems like there's some folks queuing into the, the reality, the, um, you know, sustainable products, products where there's actually a connection to the ecology are, um, are kind of a, a way to, to start looking towards now. Is that, is that the case on your end? Uh, yeah, I've been feeling that a little bit. And, and I really do think that the pandemic, I mean, I, I felt it happen more over the past, you know, five, six years, but the pandemic really added to it in that people started to think locally and then they started to think about security, whether that be again, food security or clothing security or heating security, mm. all of those things. And um, you, the local- How fast do you use oil to heat your- anything or no no but we do um render the oil to make steel oil capsules oh, so cool. they're 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 rich in omega-3 and it, like our families growing up that steel oil cured what ailed you um so oh, cool. it like yeah whiskey. you can you can yeah you can buy the, <laughs> the steel capsules yeah or newfoundland gin from the distillery uh <laughs> and uh, yeah i think i think the pandemic really really has made people or has given people time to think about impacts and think about how to minimize those and where things come from and how we acquire things. And after we're gone, what will be the impacts of things that we leave behind? How will they impact our planet? So yeah, I do think maybe it is shifting a little bit, which is, which is great. Cool. And if you, if you had a, I just have to know, if, if do you have a favorite product in the boutique or like, is there something that you really grab? Yeah, I do. There's no video associated with this, I guess, but the slippers on my feet. Oh, nice. You know what we <laughs> yeah. can, we can share. We'll make sure to share the video or, or an image or something. Those cool. look amazing. Yeah. So Those we've got, uh, so it's the steel for here. This is rabbit. And then there's a nice rubber sole. So sometimes I'm out in the car driving down the road and I'm like, shit, I still have my slippers on. Cause they're, they're just like a boot and they're so warm, but there's wool inside. And that's I, my favorite product for sure. I would do everything in those. So you're sorry, you're the, the circulation condition you have there is, is that really is that why the seal skin stuff all kind of came into play here? <laughs> Cause like <laughs> it, it helps me for sure, I but no, imagine. that's not why that's not why it came. The, the reason we got into seal is 
when we started the wildlife museum and we had the gift shop, I knew I wanted renewable resource-based products. So furs for sure, antler carvings and, and things like that. And um, we did have a few pelts laying around. Someone gave us Caribbean text or Miss told us to do whatever. And, and I thought, they're so beautiful. Like we can do, this is a, a pelt right here. We can do some really gorgeous things with them. And then so we contacted a company that already made boots and mitts, but mainly beaver and stuff. And I said, well, if you can work with beaver, you can probably work with seal. So we purchased like two style of boots and two styles of gloves and brought them to uh, like a craft show out in St. John's. And it was a five day craft show and we sold out in two days. So the wow. next year we like doubled our order and sold out in two days. And so then we started developing our line a bit more and getting other products with it and yeah now we have a, a store in St. John's which is year-round and then one or two pop-ups depending on the year out there and we have retailers around the province and in Labrador and Carrie's sister lives in Grand Prairie and so she sells our products up there and she's done really well with them so yeah, the, I mean, the circulation thing is benefited by having sale <laughs> products, but that's not really where it came yeah. from. <laughs> I could just see them, yeah, so benefit, like just knowing how warm those products are, is just, it's pretty cool to think. It's, it was more funny than anything. Yeah. Uh, do you do you dabble in the taxidermy at all? I know you, you've mentioned it a few times, or do you leave that? Yeah. yeah, you do? We Yeah, well, so we don't do much of it anymore, just because we have so much going on with the accommodation and the boutique, and Carrie's a commercial fisherman now, too. He, purchased an enterprise last year so or two years ago so he wow. lobster fishes and crab fishes and halibut and all that and and out of everything that we have on the go taxidermy took the most time and the mm -hmm. least amount of compensation for it so that's kind of taken the back burner um but yeah like we got pictures from back in the early 2000s of us sitting at the kitchen table with a lamp with the shade off and working at the bear rugs and stuff like that um so yeah, I enjoy it. And I, I do love like the working the hides and the fleshing and stuff. It, when I go on guided hunts, that, that's the thing as a, as a non-resident of a lot of provinces, you can't do self-guided things. You have to take guides and um, the guides usually love it when I show up because they don't need to do all the fleshing. I'm just sitting around the campfire <laughs> and doing it. They're like, this is great. Jen's doing all the work. <laughs> um, and like when I got the polar bear and the muskox, we got stuck up in Northwest territories for a week. I can't say we got stuck because we were supposed to be up there for two weeks, but we tagged out early, which I never do. But that time I did. <laughs> and but there were no flights out. So we had to stay the extra week. But it was good because it took a week to get the hides skinned down in the in the living room that where we were doing it um, yeah. to get them ready for shipping. We probably won't have time to talk. I'm sure there was just a load of controversy with the, the polar bear hunt, too. But um I'm I'm really curious about just the the process of it all because it sounds like it would it would have been like adventure is an understatement like we have polar bears in Manitoba but to go do a trip like that like not many people get to hunt polar bears from my my understanding either right so it it would be a really just experience all around I would imagine can you can you walk us through that that hunt for a bit like how did that come about what was prepping for it like what was the actual experience it was out of this world. It was still within our country, but I feel like it was out of this world. Yeah. Uh, and it was in February too. When I got my polar bear, it was on, it was on the leap year day. It was February 29th, a couple of years ago. It was really cold. So 
Carrie just, you know, ran the idea of a polar bear hunt. And I was thinking, I don't know, that's not really something that I've ever thought about doing. Um, but he had met someone online in just researching muskox and then polar bear came into it. And, and I thought, well, I mean, I know the difference in the, the whole cry for help for polar bears and that they're not, they're not as, um, in trouble as what you know, the mm. media portrays. Um, cause we have Labrador here and, and I know I've seen it up there when I went up there for work with parks and stuff like that, that polar bears are abundant and doing well. So I, I started getting in touch with, um, some organizations and some government agencies and some conservation officers and stuff and inquiring about how it works up there. And essentially the, um, there's a big panel across Canada that studies polar bear subpopulation numbers and determines how many each community, um, can be allocated in terms of tags. And then the community decides whether they want to have local hunters hunt them, hunt the polar bears themselves, or if they want to sell some of them to have outsiders come in and, and hunt. So uh, the gentleman we were talking to, he, uh, he was selling a tag and I am I'm, I'm an indigenous woman. I'm, I'm of the Mi'kmaq first nation. Halibu is our band here in Newfoundland, but that doesn't translate to uh, other bands and um, certainly not to Inuit. Uh, so I was still considered like a, a non-resident. And so we purchased the tag and went up there and uh, it was like, I don't know, minus 60 sometimes with the wind chill and going to be on snowmobile and dog team for up to 12 hours a day. And the, uh, it, it was, yeah, with my circulation problem, that was the, the biggest mm. fear that I had because I thought I would die. Literally. I didn't know how I could, how I could make it, but it ended up being that all the clothes I had packed, I thought I was going to spread it out over the course of the week and I'll change in and out some of the items. <laughs> I wore them all at the same time. So I think I literally had 30 pieces of clothing on at once, like no exaggeration. I think I have on the blog that I have on the polar bear home, there's a picture and all the clothes that I have, it looks like there's no way anyone could wear it all, but I did have it all on. And then at the same time as that, I had no fewer than 12 of those hand warmers activated on me at all times. It was like three in each boot, two stuck to my knees, in my elbows and on my chest. And then I had some ready to go in my pockets because I learned the first day, if you don't have them activated and ready to go, if you wait until you're cold, then you really have the potential of losing extremities or I do anyway, waiting mm -hmm. for the new ones to heat up. So yeah, it was, it was the most amazing experience. The people up there are fantastic. They're intimately connected to nature and to the extreme conditions that they have. And it, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was unreal. We got to go to an elder's house and they cooked up the polar bear's feet, which is the delicacy of the polar bear. So we ate mm. that when we were up there and they, I think they, for, for us, like experiencing the culture is probably more important than the hunt itself, I would say, to really see how it's like when people come to Newfoundland, we want them to experience all of our traditions and how we live and coexist with them and how we serve the animals and stuff like that. So that was, it was unreal. And I think they really appreciated that because they do unfortunately get some hunters who are just like, get in and get the animal and leave. But we wanted to be immersed in the whole thing. So having that opportunity and 
having them welcome us into their homes was super special. I have so many questions so far and I'm going to try and narrow it down so that we don't go for four hours. Um, was, what was, I'm guessing there was a moment where prior to the hunt, you probably hit like a, holy shit, we're, we're actually going to do this kind of, this is, this is not, we're not just talking it. We're not just kicking the can down the street anymore. We're going to pull a trigger on the proverbial hunt here. What was, <laughs> do you remember what that was like? Or cause to me, it would like, I wouldn't even know where to start to be honest. Like, so for you to reach out to all these conservation groups, but I'm expecting even after that, you were like, you had to make a decision. Like, are we actually going to do this? Yeah, it, it was um, once I was confident that what I was undertaking wasn't putting polar bears in peril, like the numbers have never been higher for polar bear numbers, never been recorded at higher levels. And there was certainly no concern for the area where we were going to hunt. And then also knowing that there wasn't like an extra tag allocated to me that whether I was the hunter or not, whether I was the one pulling the trigger, that that animal had a tag associated with it and would have been hunted anyway, that made me feel a lot better. And that was when. I was like, okay, yeah, this is totally going to happen. And I don't know. I don't, I, I tried not to think about it. Actually, I was so afraid. <laughs> I don't think I let myself get to the point where it's like, yeah, we're going to do this. I, I remember thinking if my box of hot paws doesn't make it, I'm not going out anywhere. <laughs> and oh, and no. I almost didn't make it when we got to, I think it was Edmonton and going to take the flight North, my most precious cargo was my box of hot pots. So what do you do with your precious cargo? They always tell you, don't put precious cargo in your check baggage. You put it in your carry-on. So I did that, get through security. And it's like, wouldn't know, but I had a box of ammo or something like that in there. Oh, Everyone God. comes, you can't bring that many hand warmers. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> well, what, what's going to happen now? And they're like, well, you need to go back out and see if they can check it. So I ran to the counter and I'm like, you need to take this backpack and do whatever you have to do to get this on the plane. Cause if this backpack doesn't make it on the plane, it's just as well for me to stay in Edmonton. Cause there's no point in me going yeah. up North without this bag. And anyway, finally, and thankfully they got it on. Yeah. That's mainly what I thought. I thought as long as the hot paws work, it is a source of heat. So I can, I can figure it out as long as I had enough of them and they worked. So I didn't go with the battery operated ones because it was so cold that I figured they might die really quickly. Um, the, the ones you shake up, they're disposable, unfortunately, but you can't, you can't frig around when you're playing with your extremities oh, totally. up there. Um, so I went with those and I thought, as long as I have that source of heat, then I should be okay. And, and I was thankfully i was gonna i just want to back up a few here about you um sh like sharing or trying out foods and and figuring out like culture and stuff like that when you're up there i had the opportunity to kind of do the same thing in churchill tried beluga and seal on a bunch of stuff um but i almost found it that was kind of like the side bar of the entire story like the way they like we're sitting on the floor eating it when the table was right beside us and stuff like that like do you remember anything like that if with your experience of um like the tradition of actually just being being with the group and and all that yeah um like eating the uh the fermented beluga fat at a scooping out of a five gallon bucket that was pretty cool i, I love that but it reminded me of home in some ways um and and the weird things that we do um skinning the polar bear rug in the middle of the living room 
because it's yeah. minus 50 outside. So there's nowhere else you can skin it. It'll freeze solid within 10 minutes if you go outside or in a shed that's not heated. So we were in the living room for a week with two muskox hides and a polar bear just skinning them out <laughs> with cardboard around and uh, and like yeah like those 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 kind of things like it it, it did remind me of home because like they use five gallon buckets for that fermented fat fermented blubber and in newfoundland there's memes and everything in newfoundland in the fridge if you have a butter container there's berries in it if you have a salt beef container, there's slush in it for Christmas, like the alcohol that you mix. It, it, it's, it's really, it's really similar to, to here in some ways. Um, so like, I knew it wasn't my home, but at the same time being there felt like home and the food tasted like home again, not my home, but I knew it was someone's home. Yeah. And, yeah. and I loved that. I like the way you put that because that's exactly how I felt too. It's just like, not saying that like I, you know, on the floor often eating whale blubber and stuff but yeah when i experienced it i felt like this is the coolest thing ever and it does like the food is kind of like the side thing like the yes. coolest thing ever is i'm in a group with a group of people that think this is normal or it is normal and i'm just like an outsider looking in and i'm experiencing it it was an unbelievable feeling but. yeah when when uh, we were at the polar bear hide and they saw carrie at it they were like that's a woman's job and he's like, what do you mean? They're like, well, the women have the best hands and most precision to go fleshing out an animal. And he's like, well, I'm a taxidermist. And they're like, okay, well, maybe we'll consider letting you carry on. But we really think that you should hire one of the women to work with Jen to, to flesh it down. <laughs> wow. That was pretty cool. <laughs> That's <awesome>. funny. <laughs> what, was the, what was the actual hunt like? Was it like anything could you compare it to any other kind of like hunt that you've experienced in your life or was it kind of like on its own level in a lot of ways yeah the elements made it on its own level but but in terms of the actual strategy um we were fortunate and at the camp we ended up being at there was a little island not too far from it just a few hundred meters actually and it it was probably like 25 50 meters in elevation so we could climb up onto that and look out over so it was kind of like a spot and stock type of hunt like do for moose or whatever we climb to the highest point and, and look so yeah we, we really lucked out with uh, with that and that wasn't initially going to be the place where we were hunting out of so when we arrived we went to the, the little lodge um in the community it was like eight hours and we hadn't heard from our outfitter so we we're like okay well we'll we'll wait a bit longer and finally he called he's like I have some bad news and we were like okay and he said we went out to the cabin where we were supposed to stay and we were the first ones of the year because it was February and he said and a polar bear had destroyed it huh. so we had no cabin to go to so he ended up going around the community to see if anyone would rent out theirs and uh, thankfully someone did and that's where we went and and there was that island that elevated island that we could use as like a perch a lookout so I don't know what the other place would have been like, but we, we lucked out and had a really good area. Right on. What, what was it like, like clearly you pulled the trigger and, and connected. Uh, what, what was that moment? Cause I'm sure there was so much leading into that. Right. And just like with any animal, even like sometimes when I shoot, shoot my first duck in the fall, um, I've shot hundreds, maybe thousands of waterfowl in my life. And to, to shoot the first duck in the fall, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. That actually went like it was supposed to. Um, I didn't, 
I didn't throw all my shells in the water for once. Um, but clear, <laughs> clearly this is like a, a level up, right? Like what was, what was that moment like for you? It was surreal. Like I felt like I was in a video game and at the same time, totally stressed because I love being like one with my rifle. I want like the rifle almost to be like inside my chest. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I had eight coats on. So I'm trying to get comfortable with the rifle and the butt of it is like nine inches away from, from my chest. Yeah. So, and I'm trying to see through the scope and everything. Like that was something I wasn't prepared for just getting comfortable behind my rifle in all that clothes, because I didn't anticipate having all of it on at once. I did try, I did try and practice my rifle with a bit of clothes on, but I didn't anticipate wearing all of it at the same time. Um, so that was the stressful part. I couldn't even think about what I was doing and making sure like processing, this is a, this is a polar bear and I need to have a good shot. First of all, I'm like, how do I physically take the shot? So that kind of preoccupied me, which was probably okay. Because I don't know if I would have had like, I don't know, buck fever, (laughs) polar bear (laughs) fever, if I really thought about what I was doing, but it was, yeah, it was something else. What an experience. Wow. I think Tristan said it the best, like, I've got like a million more questions, but we don't want to take up all your time. But I do have one question I've been curious to ask you now that you mentioned polar bear feet. Um, And the reason why I ask is just because I have this weird thought that it maybe it tastes fine, but like the texture and stuff would be different. But can you kind of tell me what that was all about? Yeah, so there's not a lot of meat on it. Um, And I mean, I'm, I am okay with experimenting with food, but I really don't like the, you know, like the tendon cartilage type thing. I really, I enjoy the meat and I enjoy the the muscle portion of, of my food. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of that, but I, I ate it and it was fine and it was crunchy. It was good. What intrigued me the most was actually how you we're supposed to eat it. So the, the, the foot, you can imagine, you can cut it up almost like ribs in the sections, sure. um, you know, like the metatarsals and all that. And but you're not supposed to pick it up and bite into it like you would ribs because the Inuit say, if you do that and you show your teeth to the polar bear, the polar bear next time will show its teeth to you. Mm-hmm. So you need to use like a fork and a knife and, and eat it that way. Mm. Um, so that was the part that stuck with me probably more than the taste, just like the connection and reverence and interconnectedness of, of all of it. And, um, just made it extra special, but yeah, I would say the feet were crunchy. Yeah. Did they, <laughs> and then to prepare, so I got, two, sorry, now I got two more quick questions. This is going to go forever. Um, well, the first, no, actually the first one's kind of a statement. Cause like another thing that I've heard. Um, and I don't know if it was through something I've read or heard on a podcast, but like the Inuit also have like a thing about like mounting the polar bear head in, but this was like a long time ago in the igloos because they wanted to see that if you're all the other pole, they want that polar bear to tell all the other polar bears that if you're going to be shot by a family or, or a group of people, this group is good because they Here's use the all family. the polar bear, right? So that's, right. that's one thing that's I thought awesome. of. But the other thing I was going to ask you is like, so how did they prepare it? Like, did they... Because I know a lot of ways they do meats and stuff is boiling it if they're going to cook it. But That's on the, what they did. is that what they did? And it was still yep. crunchy. Hey, yeah. And then what, the what did they do for like, see, was there any seasoning or butter or anything else that they put on that or no? Um, 
yeah, we might have dipped it in butter. There may there may have been butter there. Yeah, I don't okay. I don't quite remember, but um, yeah, there wasn't too much to it. It was it was boiled and, and yeah, that's about it. Yeah. When I tried the beluga, I remember and talking about textures too is like you'd have a little piece, and all I could think about was the beluga skin because it looked white. And then you'd take it and dip it in soy sauce. And then they said, like, you don't want to chew it up like a cracker. Just chew it a few times, just enough to swallow it. <laughs> and and I'm like, that's easy because it didn't taste good at all. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, that's my, uh, those are my questions about the polar bear feed, I guess. It's funny. I, when I, when I was younger, I worked with a few folks that came down from Nunavut and they were in a, kind of like living down here and people were trying to feed them like beef and and chicken and stuff like that and they were they were actually getting sick um off of this food because they weren't used to it and then i brought them some like i had just gone hunting for geese that fall and i brought them some goose breast and their eyes got like massive because like geese is part of their their uh their diet up there and yeah it sure is and they were they were very happy to see you know like the darker goose meat as opposed to like the white white safeway chicken meat that we have down here <laughs> yeah they were like oh finally my digestive tract will work again <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um Last question, I, I swear to God, um, but uh, did the did the polar bear make it into the museum, or where's the where's the uh, the hide now? We have a polar bear in the museum, but it's not that one. That is kind of a funny story with that too. When we were planning the museum, we knew we wanted a polar bear in it because we do get polar bears come across from Labrador on occasion to the island, and we wanted to showcase all the major mammals at least that call Newfoundland home or visit. So the cheapest polar bear rug we could find was in Ontario for $25,000. Yeah, so we were, <laughs> we were like, well, guess we're not going to have a polar bear. This will be an empty stall. This will be an empty diorama. We'll put a curtain over it. We'll figure out something else to put in it. And at that same time is when I was working with the parks and I was traveling around delivering training to different national park staff and I had the incredible opportunity to go north to Baffin Island to Ayuita National Park in Pengertung. So I landed in Pengertung and checked into my lodge and the, there was a sign on the wall. First sign I saw when I walked in and it said polar bears for sale. So I called Carrie and I was like, I don't know what it means, but it says polar bears for sale. So he's like, well, you better call. So I did. I called and it was a lady named Rosie. And she uh, she said, yeah, I have a, I have a rug. So I went to her house and she showed me this big, beautiful pelt and I asked her how much and she said 12 and I said, well, 12 is a lot less than 25, but it's still a lot of money. But then I realized she meant 1200, not 12,000. Oh <laughs> so I was, I called home and I was like, Carrie, she wants 1200 for it. And he's like, okay, we'll get her the money. So I go to the bank machine and it's like a hundred dollar limit. <laughs> So I, I put in one card, take $100 out, put in another card, take $100 out, go back the next day and do the same thing again. And by the time I was finished there for the week, I had enough money out to give to Rosie. So I packed up my clothes. I mailed them all home Canada Post. They came like six weeks later or something. And I took the bear home with me as my check baggage. That's funny. That's a great oh, story. That's cool. I kind of want to see this polar bear now. Oh yeah, he's uh he's pretty good. Um, if if you go to the wildlife museum 
website. I think there's a picture of them there, just grossmormwildlifemuseum.com maybe. And uh, mounting that was quite a task though, because we didn't have the whole animal to measure and order the right form for it. When it whereas if you go hunt an animal, you can gauge the size or, or measure it if you need and then order the right one from the taxidermy supply company. This, we just had a rug. And, and when Inuit are skinning the rugs, they're doing it for rugs or for clothing. So if they leave a bit here or there, or maybe take some for a pair of mitts or something, it's not a big deal. But when you're doing a life-size mount, you need every bit to make it get pieced together like a puzzle. So we had to guess at the form and the form that we ordered was like probably for the biggest polar bear ever known to man. So it was, we had to chainsaw out a foot wide section of the form, put the front and the half backs or pieces together. It didn't meet up anywhere. So there was so much work to shave it down and try the fur around it. And anyway, the day we, we got it, there was a scattered case of beer drank. I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like, uh, Sounds like sausage day at the the Drylick household. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> and then so my polar bear um, that I have, it's actually still salted right now. And I I almost want to make some clothing out of it. But at, at the same time, I don't, I, I want to keep the whole thing intact. So I'm kind of torn. So I haven't, mm. I haven't quite decided what I'm doing with it. It's, it's still salted in. You'll keep us posted. Yeah, I sure will. Awesome. Um, speaking of the museum, and the store and the blog and the Instagram, where can, where can folks find you? Yeah. Instagram is where I'm probably most active. So my handle there is smidgen. So S M I D J E N smidgen was my great nan's favorite word. Like if you'd ask her if she wanted something to eat, she'd say, Oh, I'll have a smidgen. Oh, yeah. did, did you, did you do any work today? Oh, I did a smidgen. So it's just a play on that word with my name, Jen. Uh, my blog is jenshears.com and the sealskin and fur boutique is natural boutique. So that's on uh, the website. You can shop online or view the products naturalboutique.ca and the wildlife museum is grossmoreandwildlifemuseum.com. So any of those places you can reach me and I'm always happy to hear from people, whether you're telling me to frig off or you're asking me a, a question and or saying good stuff. I'm happy to hear from everyone. So uh, yeah, get in touch. Awesome. Uh, What's the temperature out there today, Jen? Today is a cold day for here. It's minus 15. Uh, Mm -hmm. Newfoundland, our average temperatures are probably like minus six, minus seven, but with the humidity. So it, it chills you to your core, Mm -hmm. that kind of, that kind of cold. But yeah, minus 15 today. Not a contest, but it, it it's a minus 30, minus 35 kind of day here in Manitoba. And so it was pretty cold. And I locked my keys in my truck today when I went to start huh. it to, to go no. home. And so the, the, the truck was running in Selkirk by itself while I ran home to get more my keys. Oh so my goodness. You've had a day of it. I had a day of it. So I had a day of it, but I want to say it was a, it was a true pleasure talking to you tonight. And, uh, I, really recharge my battery so i i want to thank you for coming on the podcast and just sharing some of your insights and your experience and uh your experiences too i should say thanks well it was a real pleasure talking to you your questions are great i need to prep myself for the next five question thing because i'm questions? not well prepared there, there's <laughs> not no preparing prepared for, for it that's all that's the whole point 
Oh, buddy, it might get you out of a bind sometimes. If you <laughs> meet someone in a dark alley and they throw the five questions at you, you better get ready to answer them. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I thought it, that but it was a real, a real pleasure. Yeah, yeah and I, I just want to, it's just my kind of final thought here about today's podcast is, first of all, um, I'll tell the truth. I was the fill-in tonight because Chase was supposed to be on, but then he had, I think he had swimming lessons with his kids. So I jumped on very unprepared. And it was almost refreshing to be unprepared because I'm, there's a lot of information that you've been taught. We've been talking about. It's just like, you know, it's, it's all new and it's great. And I love it. Um, but I, I do want to tell you, Jen, is to make sure to go through fibrinating questions, you know, every couple nights in your own head and, and get some ready because I really want to get you back on and talk more <laughs> stuff because uh, this is awesome. It was a, it was a blast tonight. So thank you for um, coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, you guys are refreshing as well. So keep up the great work. Thank you. So if we don't see you on the on the water in the woods, Jen, we'll wish you good luck this this spring. I guess it would be anything cool going on in the spring. I shouldn't ask you any more questions. But uh, it's okay. Yeah. I'm probably bear hunting, which we do here, and uh, I'm just in talks of maybe doing some cool projects with Wild TV and maybe some other people. So yeah, those are the kinds of things that I'm that and hockey a lot of hockey practices with Aspen. <laughs> awesome well we'll stay stu- stay tuned and we wish you luck and we'll see you down the road thanks and that's a wrap on episode 145 super fun conversation with jen i i learned a lot and it, w- it was cool to see kind of jen take just a multitude of angles, in my opinion, to conservation and to hear the Newfoundland story as well with just things that we don't always get a chance to hear about out in Manitoba here. So I'm, I'm very grateful for Jen popping up, popping on, sharing her knowledge around uh, everything from hunting uh, to, to some of her trips and, and using those products all the way from like kill to, to being out in the field, right? Yeah, the, the product thing was really interesting because we've had this conversation before, like maybe a couple of years ago when Canada Goose quit using uh, coyote trim on their jackets and it's in like, and not only that, but they get in so much shit for using like goose down and, and there's a bunch of different products out there that are using like a resource that's renewable and um, there's so much hate on it. But at the same time, it's like you got to talk to people that boots on the ground type people that are there watching for instance the seals overpopulate right like what what was that one thing she said about like seals eating crabs or something like they don't normally eat yeah it's because they're starving you know it's like well we could use that you know yeah or eating salmon too right like that's freaky like the people like every every like state and province on the on the coast is trying to get their salmon populations back in line. And now you got the seals eating the salmon. Like, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, it's like one of those things and I don't even know exactly what it is, but as soon as like humans touched nature, like basically means that now we got to manage it, but we still got to manage it. And then there's like so much, you know, backlash. It's hard to manage sometimes, but speaking of uh, managing, I've been, kind of been working on the store there and anybody that's been looking to buy some stuff from us through our store at www.panoramicoutdoors.com we've been kind of having some issues not only with ordering for um for not being able to get in products because of back orders but the other thing is too is since the Manitoba outdoor show we haven't had time to go through our inventory and find out exactly what we have 
um, we should be fairly close. So if you are on there, you want to order something, um, DM us if, if there's any problems, but it should be up and running. I also got some cutting boards coming. They're done. They've been done for like a month and I haven't been able to run over to go grab them yet. Uh, but maybe this weekend I'll go grab them and we'll have those back in the store. And we got hats and we got sweaters and anything else like that, uh, that you might be looking for, for this spring or, you know, bonfire season this summer while you're camping, check our stuff out because it's uh, super comfy. Uh, it's stylish and we get a lot of, uh, a lot of good feedback from it. So if you want to help out our podcast, you can uh, purchase some stuff from our merch store, but if you want to help us without spending any money, cause money's tight, like we all know, give us a like or share or, comment or whatever you can do to help spread the word the more times you do that for us the you know it's better for us it makes us grow and we get an awesome guests to come on and it gives us the what would be like pride to keep doing it the motivation yeah. to keep doing it well, yeah even sharing the odd hunting story goes a long way hey oh man we love to hear it that's the thing too i've had a lot of sorry tristan but i've had a lot of good feedback from the will sakura episode too like local guy from manitoba so anybody's listening from manitoba that wants to jump on the podcast send us an email um you know we might not be able to get every single person on but it's definitely we're you know we're always looking for guests and uh good conversations so if you have a good yeah. story or you want to jump on a podcast send us an email or dm us absolutely and if we don't see you in the dms if we don't see you out in the woods or on the water we are going to wish you luck out there and i'll remind you to chew the fat is what is little you're only supposed to chew it once or twice there Sheldon yeah two or three times yeah two or two or three <laughs> okay uh let's and let's keep those extremities warm and make sure you get your ice shelters off the uh the ice in time too you might have to pay for it like we did the one year <laughs> be safe out there 